I don't think any of us would ever blame the passengers for not rearranging any one of the 614 deck chairs on the Titanic. That doesn't mean that those chairs could not have been rearranged to put in a way that would be more conducive to group interaction or to be arranged in a way that's symmetrically pleasing to the eye. But why bother, right? Because the ship was going down. And if the ship is going down, who cares about arrangement or order or beauty? Amid the chaos that must certainly be present when a ship is sinking, I think it's completely natural for people to turn inward and to have an each-man-for-himself attitude. So here's the thing. I think the Titanic has become a microcosm for an attitude that really persists in the church today, that our world, like the Titanic, is going down. So why bother protecting it? Why bother preserving it? Why bother attempting to change it in any way? And so this persistent teaching has has made many evangelical Christians bent on and sometimes just a little gleeful about a final and complete destruction. I know when I was growing up, every believer I knew carried a little phrase in their pocket. And this phrase was pulled out all the time. And the phrase was this, it's all going to burn anyway. You might want to comfort somebody. The snow just collapsed the roof on their house. Honey, that's okay. It's all going to burn anyway. Or maybe if somebody had something really nice that you didn't have a nice new car, a nice new house, and it was nicer than yours, and you didn't say, it's all going to burn anyway. So kind of a catch-all phrase, but that's the way it was. Pentecost, the event of Pentecost, can remind us that the ship is not going down. That God bothered with Pentecost at all gives us hope that we are headed not for complete and final destruction. Instead, we, along with all creation, are headed for recreation. And by the power of the Spirit poured out on Pentecost, you and I as believers in Christ become part of the answer to the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Thy kingdom come on earth. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pentecost reminds us as well that you and I are not just to be in a holding pattern, turned in on ourselves, each man for himself, doing our own thing with Jesus until Jesus comes finally to rescue us. No, by the power of the Spirit of God, you and I partner with God to bring transformation to this world that God is renewing. Hope we'll be convinced of that this morning from the word of the Lord. So if you have your Bible with you, I want to ask you to turn in the New Testament to the book of Acts. We didn't finish our time there last week on Pentecost Sunday, Acts chapter 2. And when you found your place, I want to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. 
All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would bless us as you promise, because your word has been read and heard. And now we call on you, Spirit of God, to teach us your truth. Convict our hearts, change us, transform us, renew us, reposition us, all the things that you know that we need, both as a body and as individuals. We pray that you would do that now as we come together around your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, none of us ever wants to arrive to a surprise party late. We want to get to the, the party early so we can be with a group of people that jumps out and says, surprise. And why is that? Because we don't want to miss the reaction of the one being surprised. There's something exhilarating about seeing someone who is the recipient of a, re, of a surprise party. The same way if, if we know someone's getting a really great gift and you know this person, and everybody knows they're really, really going to love this gift, and you're running late, so you get on the phone, you text, and you beg, please don't give her the gift yet. Please wait till I get there. I'm almost there. Why? Because we want to see the reaction of the person receiving the gift. You and I clearly were not present on the day of Pentecost. So with our eyes, we did not get to uh, see the reaction of these thousands of people when God gave this amazing gift of the Spirit. But verse 12 records for us what the reaction of the crowds were. Look in verse 12. It says there that people were amazed and perplexed. Now, we didn't see that, but we know what an amazed face looks like, right? Yeah. We know what a perplexed, I have this look a lot. We know what a perplexed face looks like, right? Even, even if we weren't there to see it. These people were at a complete loss. They didn't know what to think. This gift of the Spirit was beyond their ability to comprehend. It wasn't normal for them. They looked for a file up here in their brain, somewhere to file it away, and they had nothing that would match this experience. So astonishment mingled with a little fear came over them when God gave the gift of His Spirit. When you think about it, of course they were astonished and perplexed. We're talking about the Spirit of God being poured out. And so the question is, why should our reaction to the Spirit be any different? Now, I know, please, I know that Pentecost was a unique event in salvation history. I know that is true. But nevertheless, 
It is also true that the Spirit of God, because He is God, is unchanging. The Spirit of God is infinite, eternal, and unchanging in His being. And so that means that among us, people who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, especially when you and I meet together, there should be the same reaction to the Spirit. There should be a sense of wonder among us. There should be a sense of amazement. At times, we should also be perplexed by the mysterious working of the Spirit, since it always has been and forever will be true that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than our ways. That's the truth of God's word. The reaction of this crowd on the day of Pentecost then should reposition us because we're probably not in the position we should be. When it comes to the things of God, when it comes to the power of God and the work of the Spirit, you and I are reduced, or we should be. In all, we're humbled. In all, we are reminded that we are completely out of our league. God is so much greater than we are. And when we realize that, we say with the Apostle Paul, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The only reason we have for boasting. And so you and I are repositioned by the Spirit. Look again at verse 12. There's amazement, there's perplexity, and it leads them to this question, what does this mean? Now I guarantee you this. On November 9th of 2016, a few months from now, we will all be asking that very same question. What does this mean? Because we will have on November the 8th elected a new president. Should Hillary Clinton be elected, we will ask, what does this mean? What is our new reality with her as president? If Donald Trump be elected, the answer The question will be asked. The answer will be drastically different. But we will ask, what is our new reality with him in office? Perhaps God will work in some unforeseen way so that neither one of them is part of our reality. And the people of God said, (laughs) miracles happen. People make decisions based on their reality. And so I'm sure that you've heard people, like I have heard people say, well, I'm just leaving the country. I'm going to move to blah, blah, blah. Far more importantly, you and I should be asking the same question, what does this mean about the new reality of the Spirit of God, His presence in an unchanging world? His presence is unchanging in this ever-changing world? What does the coming of the Spirit mean to us? What does the coming of the Spirit mean for the world? He's a reality as well for each one of us here this morning who have come to faith in Christ. The Spirit did His work. He, 
He, he awakened our dead souls. Get up, get up. The Spirit of God revealed to us our own sinfulness. He opened our eyes to see our desperate need for Christ. The Spirit of God enabled us then to put our faith in Christ as our only hope, as our only salvation in this world and the next. That's the work of the Spirit in our hearts. He allowed us to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And in that moment, the Spirit of God himself took up residence in our lives. That is our new reality. We are ones who are indwelled by the Spirit of the living God. What does this mean? How are we to live in light of our reality? What life choices are we now to make? To what purposes are we now to give our lives? In what activities are we to invest our time? Literally, we ask, what in the world is God up to? What in the world is God up to? And when we answer this question prayerfully, we broaden the work of the Spirit beyond just a simple fixer-upper job, you know, in you and me. As important as that is, and as much as the Lord loves us, you know, we're not the center of everything. The Spirit is doing a work of vast importance and vast proportions because the truth is that unlike the Titanic, the world is not going down. Complete destruction is not what is in store for this world. And when you and I can embrace that reality, when we can free ourselves from the thought that it's all going to burn anyway, and the accompanying indifference and irresponsibility that that attitude promotes toward the physical world and toward those in it, then you and I can start living as the Spirit intends us to live and do the things that the Spirit calls us and enables us to do. So, to dispel the thought of final and complete destruction and to broaden the work of the Spirit beyond saving me and taking me to heaven, we've got to get the big picture. And to get the big picture, we have to start at the beginning. So, a little mental break here. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Genesis, easiest book to find, first book in the, in the Bible. Turn there to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. Verse 10. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was? Verse 16. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from darkness. And God saw that it was? Verse 21. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with them. The water teams and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was? 
Verse 25, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was, verse 31, and God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very, and there was evening and morning the sixth day. Now, I know that you are all well acquainted with these verses. And I know just as well that I could have read just the one summary verse. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But I read them all because you and I need to hear that repetition. If we did not need the repetition, if one summation verse would have been sufficient, then God would not have written Genesis chapter 1 as he inspired it to be written. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. God is impressing upon us the goodness of his creation. Don't think of what God conceived in his mind and then created with his hand as anything but good, literally a divine work of art. So the thing that we are so bent on believing will experience final and complete destruction. God says it's very good. All of it good, pleasant, desirable, usable, efficient, beautiful, of value, exquisite, morally good. All those nuances of the Hebrew word used for good in Genesis 1. When you and I look in Scripture, we don't see God throwing things away. The words that punctuate scripture are words like renew, restore, redeem, which simply means to buy back, not to buy new, to buy back. Verses like Psalm 104.30 give us confidence and hope. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. The spirit of God renewing the face of the ground. Or Matthew 20. Verse 18, speaking about Jesus. Here's my servant whom I've chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. See, the Lord's business is to restore. The Lord's business is to to transform. Think about Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration with the disciples. His earthly body was not destroyed before their eyes. What happened to it? It was glorified, the same body glorified before their eyes. Likewise, the very dead body of a really dead Jesus a body that had lived and walked in this old sinful world. It was neither destroyed nor discarded by God in favor of a brand new body. No, the old body was resurrected. The same body of Jesus, the ones with the marks in his hands and the marks in his feet, resurrected gloriously. Renewal, restoration, redemption, Reclamation, this is what God is about. And for that, you and I who are believers in Christ are thankful now, aren't we?
and forever we will be grateful. If God destroyed, if God discarded the broken and the messed up and the stubbornly and persistently sinful, if God did in fact go ahead and break into the bent reed, if God did go ahead and blow out that smoldering candle, we would be without hope, wouldn't we? If that's the kind of God that we had, but we don't. All our hope is in the fact that God does renew and restore and redeem and reclaim not only people, but all of creation, all that he proclaimed to be good. Now, I want us to to do this and, and follow with me. I want us to compare the continuity between the week of creation about which we read in Genesis chapter one, that week, And the week that ushers in the possibility of new creation, which was the last week of Jesus' life. Now let's compare these two weeks. On the first sixth day of the week, okay, the very first Friday in human history, God completed his work of creation. Genesis 2.1 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, completed in all their vast array. Then on the first seventh day, the first Saturday or Sabbath day of human history, God rested from all the work he had completed, Genesis 2.2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. All right? You following so far? Now, let's go to the last sixth day of the week, the last Friday of the week that ushers in the new creation. On that Friday, Jesus is hanging on a cross. You know the story. And from the cross, he proclaims, it is finished. My work is complete. Every good thing that needs to be done to renew and restore and reclaim, everything that needs to be done to redeem And by back, it has been done, it is finished, says Jesus on that Friday from the cross. Then comes Saturday, the seventh day, the Sabbath day, and Jesus' body rests in the tomb, right? Then, of course, comes Sunday, right? The first day of the new week, of the first day of the new world, And Jesus' newly resurrected body emerges from the grave. So now, recreation is possible. Is that good news? So I don't believe that this consistency is coincidental. Neither is it buried in obscurity. I believe God wants us to get it. And so Genesis 1 specifically records day by day the week of creation... And the Gospels record specifically, day by day, the week that leads to new creation. Because God, I believe, is putting before us a picture of the work that he has for you and for me to do as recreated beings in the world that he is recreating. All of the Old Testament is in anticipation of this new day, this new reality. Pentecost is the beginning of a new story that was planned from eternity past and first promised in the very good garden whose perfection was destroyed by sin. 
The promise is that renewal is coming and restoration is coming and redemption is coming. And that's really what this is all about. When one person after the other, after the other, lives out their redemption, when each one of them display in their redeemed life the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's what a redeemed life looks like. And this kind of heart and this kind of life, it's not conducive. It's not a welcoming host for seeds of hate and anger and injustice and all the symptoms that accompany those characteristics. Just think of one thing that Jesus says. Just one, the love of money. The love of money, not money, but the love of money is the root of all evil. Think what our world would look like if we could get rid of the love of money. Think how behavior would change, motivation would change, not least of which, what about wars that are fought just to get more of it? Renewed people don't have to be convinced to care for this beautiful earth. They don't have to be convinced to carry out God's creation mandate to tend the earth any more than a loving child needs to be told not to drop their trash all over the house or graffiti the walls or rip the curtains or track mud all over the carpet of the house of the parents who love them so much. Reclaimed, renewed, restored, redeemed people want to care for the earth and all that's in it because it was created by God who when he created it said, it is good. It's not going to be discarded or destroyed. It will be renewed, no doubt. Scripture tells us certainly of that. This world will be purged. It will be cleansed of all the ravaging that sin and sinful people have done to it. It will be removed. One day the will of God will be done perfectly on earth as it is in heaven. That's going to be a great day. The vision that the apostle John has recorded in, in Revelation, it's of the new Jerusalem. And what's going on with the new Jerusalem? It's coming down, right? Out of heaven to where? To earth. And so it's good for us, each one of us here, to share God's heart in this. It's good by the power of the Spirit of God to be renewal people, reclaiming people, restoring people, redeeming people who seek to take back what rightfully belongs to God for his purposes. So what I'm saying is it's okay to rearrange the deck chairs. It's okay to bring beauty and order because you know what? The ship is not going down. If God wanted it otherwise, I think he would take us to be with him immediately after we were saved. But But that's not how God normally does it. God saves us. And then what does he do? He leaves us here on this earth. Not to be in a holding pattern that extends from our salvation to our glorification. Waiting, waiting, waiting. No, we're to be restoring beauty to the broken world and restoring beauty to broken lives all around us. That's God's call in our lives. 
But of course, we have an enemy, and we're almost done. We have an enemy against these purposes of God. Jesus calls our enemy the prince of this world. Peter writes that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. As you well know, not everyone is going to believe the gospel, and not everyone is going to embrace people like us who believe the gospel. And again, in this most nonsensical election process that I've ever borne witness to in my 52 years, and with the most nonsensical directives coming out from the highest offices in our country, I'm reminded that the task to which God has called us and commissioned us is daunting. Now we come full circle back to the Spirit. It's only the Spirit of God that will allow us to accomplish the work that God has given to us. And that's why we see Scripture calling us, calling you and me to sacrifice, to take up our crosses, to suffer. It's for the sake of kingdom work, the work of renewing the world and reclaiming it for Jesus' sake. You know, true Christianity, it's not pleasant. It's exciting. It is. It's fulfilling. It's awe-inspiring to to stand back and, and watch God work and deliver people and renew people and restore people and put broken lives back together. It's all those things, but it's not pleasant. At least not in the southern sweet tea kind of pleasant. That's what American Christians want Christianity to be like. Just, we just want to be pleasant. We just want to get along on Sunday morning, don't we? Until we understand the renewing, restoring, reclaiming, redeeming heart of God, we will not see our role in the process. And if you and I don't see our role in the process, we will not cry out to the Spirit to enable us or empower us to do what God has called us to do. But these are the things we must do. These are the things that we get to do in partnership with God. Because the ship is not going down, we cry out for the light of Christ to fill this land with the Father's glory. We call out to the Spirit to to blaze and to set our hearts on fire and to flow like a river and flood the nations with grace and mercy. Last week, and we're done, when I said to you, turn to your neighbor and say Pentecost was on purpose, it wasn't to be silly, it wasn't to be funny or flippant. So turn to your neighbor and say Pentecost was on purpose. See, we just need to engage all the senses. You need to look at somebody besides me. You need to hear yourself saying that and someone else. Those words filling this room, Pentecost was on purpose because it was. So that we would know as the people knew 2,000 years ago, that there is awe with the Spirit, there's perplexity with the Spirit, and it should cause us to say, what does this mean? And now we can give an answer. It means that in the power of the Spirit, we are to engage in reclaiming, renewing, restoring, redeeming not only people, but this world for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask first and foremost, that you would help us clearly see the role to which you have called us. To be these kind of people in this world, people that you have renewed and commissioned and sent out with the gospel, 
to be people that through the gospel and the power of the Spirit speak the good news of the gospel so that people's lives are renewed and restored, broken lives put back together. Lord, that we would not have a a nihilistic, even Gnostic view of this world, but Lord, that we would see what you have created as good and that we would do our part in redeeming and restoring and renewing this creation, which only you can do finally and perfectly. And for that day, we we look and we long and we pray. The day that you will come and set all things right. That will be a great day. But Lord, you haven't called us to be in a holding pattern now. You haven't called us to turn inward. You haven't called us to say each man for himself. No, Lord, you have called us to be active in this world through the power of your spirit for your glory. So convict our hearts to be that and do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.